Hello and welcome to DigiFinVox, Voices in Digital Finance. I'm your host, James DiBiazio. Enjoy the program, give us a like, share, subscribe, get that algorithm to do some work. My guests today are Julian Kwan and Alice Chen, co-founders of Singapore-based fintech InvestaX. Julian and Alice have been at the forefront of tokenization. I spoke with them about how tokenization has evolved, what it means in the post-FTX world, and where is the action going to happen next? Alice Chen and Julian Kwan from InvestaX, welcome to DigFinVox. Thank you. Uh, Hi, Jamie. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Yeah, no, pleasure. So I was, uh, this is sort of a a COVID story, really. I I had met you both uh, in the early days of DigFin, uh, probably about five or six years ago. Uh, You were sort of at that point, uh, pioneers in the tokenization concept as as a business. Uh, And then with COVID, I didn't see you for a long time. Uh, And then you were uh, back up in Hong Kong just recently uh, after we reopened. uh, And I was like, oh, you're still here. I'm still here. So let's get you on the Digifin Vox. So I'm glad to see uh, see you on the show. Yeah, thanks. I think that Hong Kong trip really uh, made us realize uh, Hong Kong is back, right, in uh, full swing and really supporting the digital assets industry. And it was good to touch base with everyone in the space. Great. Let's start with, uh, I'm just curious how you got in, the two of you co-founded InvestX. Um, how did you come up with the idea of this company? How did the whole thing get started uh, back in the early days? The- do you want to go, Julian, first? <laughs> you, can go. you can go first. <laughs> well, I think for full disclosure, and this probably makes it story a bit even more interesting, we are married as well. And okay. as um, being a licensed financial institution here in Singapore, we're actually required to disclose that on our on our website and our terms and conditions, um, I, which I found quite funny. But um 2015, maybe 14, we started looking at the crowdfunding space, uh, looking at how it had taken off in the US and try to bring that same concept to Asia. We looked at Hong Kong and Singapore. Um, Hong Kong didn't seem as open uh, in terms of the regulations and-, and it's, it's illegal here, basically. Yeah. yeah, so so we decided Singapore was the right <laughs> jurisdiction to set up at that time. So uh, we went down the traditional crowdfunding space uh, until ICOs took off, which was in 2017, and really liked the concept and the ethos behind that. And we call it crowdfunding 2.0 and started looking at blockchain technology and seeing how we can incorporate that into what we thought was a quite low-tech um, crowdfunding platform. And since 2017, we've just been fully immersed in um, bringing Web3 concepts and blockchain into our platform. Um, from you know a background perspective, I'm, I'm a lawyer by training, and a lot of uh, this space is heavily regulated, um, which differentiates operating a, a security token platform from a crypto. At the, at the time back then, there were no regulations. Um, crypto was generally unregulated, whereas what we were offering were highly regulated products still falling under, in most jurisdictions, securities um, uh, regulations. 
But um, yeah, since then we've we've really tried to just bridge uh, the gap between traditional finance and 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 DeFi concepts. Um, Julian, yeah. do we have anything more to add to that? Yeah, I think um, we did look at trying to set up in Hong Kong. Uh, it's good to see Hong Kong back now with their kind of positive digital asset kind of moves, um, which I think is great for the region and good for Hong Kong, good for everywhere. Uh, yeah, the ultimate um thinking was that the internet would be um needed to change kind of raising money and and investing into non-publicly traded assets into private market assets so the crowdfunding model was kind of the first version um which was which was good it was a good start it's quite limited with its technology very limited with technology most crowdfunding websites and more marketing kind of machines um there was some <clears throat> big great benefits to that there were people investing in assets all over the world just because they had enough trust built through a platform there was enough information um i thought that was that showed that um there was something um something valuable there i think the limitations were that um actually it just comes back to to paper-based investing um when you're investing into either real estate or startups whether you're on a website or not um you put your money in and that was the end of it, you know, wait five, 10, 15 years. And we hadn't really changed too much. So when we looked at, and that's when we, we'd met and yeah, it was great to catch up again in Hong Kong. And it was pretty much just before the umbrella movement in 2018, the beginning of the security token market that we last met. And I think the, the thinking remains the same for me that uh, this, uh, you know, blockchain token smart contract provides essentially crowdfunding 2.0 actually the next generation of the technology um and then far beyond that value you're going to start to see um the development of a whole bunch of new investment products just like um we've witnessed in public markets with the development of etf structures or electronic trading and we saw these huge explosions it's, it's quite frustrating i think for us being in the space for a couple of years already um most people still don't really understand that they can't see the analogy and see the evidence that has happened in the public markets of what this new tech what new technology did to those markets at the time um so we fundamentally believe that you know all structures funds trusts startups um will be tokenized they'll be tokenized either by private companies or by governments themselves putting their their companies on distributed ledgers because it's more transparent, it's more instant, um, it's better. And then for us, we think that the the use of the technology allows for not only these new investment products, but if you are working through the public protocols, issuing your assets and security tokens and assets on public protocols, you then connect to the whole value of the power and the innovations of, of decentralized finance. Um, and that's the real magic, I think. And then you're creating, you're, you're being able to use things like automated market makers and we built the first one for security tokens and that's a whole new universe of value that again is is, is building these are the sort of the multi-dimensional values that that we see in the space that we're building towards but yeah so long-winded short it was like this is it you know and and i think we've been right on the basis that this is so much deeper than the crowdfunding level um at so many different levels um and yeah, here we are. We're still, we're still going, and this is kind of the year that tokenization becomes a little bit more mainstream. Um, I want to, if- I want to ask you. This is a good place to ask. There's a lot in there that I want to unpack from from both of you. What is tokenization? 
<laughs> shall, shall, shall I give it a try? Okay. Um, the simple way that I explain tokenization is taking um, the blockchain and issuing digital versions of an asset. And those uh, interests can be bundled and unbundled now because of the benefits of tokenization. You can transfer um, ownership interests. You can transfer economic interests now. Things like uh, the right to income stream, rental rental stream, um, distributions, without actually transferring the entire ownership, um, and and then you can also tokenize, um, you know, fiat. In that instance, then that fiat becomes uh, stable coins or central bank digital currency. So it's just generally making a digital version of that using uh, the underlying technology, which is DLT. What's What's the difference between that versus just creating a synthetic derivative that that tracks uh, a market event or a price or some other thing where you can basically derive the economic benefits of somebody else's public securities or or anything or their IP, uh, but but you don't necessarily have the the, the owner the actual ownership and voting rights over it. My um, my explanation of the the difference in um, derivatives is that the fact that the actual securities reside on a digital ledger, and then on the opposite side, you can have a digital currency, you actually facilitate and enable um, instantaneous transactions on chain. That so we're not, right. So we're not talking about taking, you know, IBM stock or whatever, and mirroring that in a, a digital world, but it's not the real thing. It's just a mirror versus native origination onto a blockchain and then from there doing whatever it is that you could do with that with that asset is that correct yeah i mean i think uh, so i teach a course at smu as a guest lecturer and and those concepts i still distinguish today because they do exist uh as different types of uh, digital securities in in the prior one where you tokenize an existing public market security we've called them tokenized securities. Mm -hmm. And in the latter one where you said they exist on the blockchain, there's no paper representation of it. We've called them security tokens. They're native on the blockchain. And all of those are uh, within the digital securities um, realm, but have very different kind of capabilities. As I said, you can't really, um, you know, there, there's still some manual reconciliation that may be required with a with a tokenized security. Whereas we did a project um, uh, with UBS and State Street with an MAS grant where it was a native blockchain VCC structure, um, which is a, a a fund structure in Singapore. So there's no paper representation. All, the member registry resides entirely on the blockchain to facilitate. Um, uh, record keeping and also instantaneous transactions and also removal of certain intermediaries. What's the way that you've seen the, this, this space and this concept evolve since InvestX has been around? Um, the kind of conversations, the possibilities, what's actually out there in the marketplace? Maybe just give us a, a quick potted history of, of what this space uh, looks like today versus what it used to when you when you started. Yeah. Um, well, when we started, um, 
I think we did the first security token event in Singapore and we joined the first one in Hong Kong. That was about four or five years ago. That was a challenging beginnings. They were the very first security tokens were all failed ICOs. Um, they couldn't sell anymore. So they basically just tried to change their name. They're all being sold illegally at that point because there were securities offerings um, not being issued with broker dealers. Not, not there was there was no regulation framework to it at all. So the the birth of this industry was was um, murky and challenging. I think it was around 2018, and then the the first couple of years, the only infrastructure players in the space were known as token issuance companies, and they helped real world companies, real world assets um, issue those shares or, um, you know, as tokens, as security tokens, but they were technology companies only. So they had no licenses as well. So that was also very limited. Um, most people that wanted to issue any types of securities want to go outside their existing un universe um, and, and trading venues and try to tap into all this promised value. So that was um, sort of 2017, 18 to 20. By the time we got to 20, which again, you know, half the industry, it's only five years old, we started seeing the first security token exchanges come out. So they were people that had gone and got these licenses to issue and trade security tokens. Um, there was a few that popped up in the US. Problem with that was that they were, um, you know, very early and there was not much liquidity on those those platforms because they're brand new. So you had a um, you had a lot of fees and costs and then they wanted you to send their asset and send your investors to those security token exchanges, but there wasn't a huge amount of activity. So, but they is you know necessary uh, infrastructure needed in the space. Um, we came along and then said, let's give the best of both worlds a licensed tokenization SaaS platform. You can co-brand it. You can use our tech to issue your security tokens. You can leverage our licenses to trade and whatnot. And that's kind of the best of both worlds. But what it means is you've gone from. Um, you know, the very first security token offerings five years ago that you or I would never would laugh at, basically. They were just such a joke in terms of um, proposed quality, if you will. Um, right. Now, investment banks, Julius Barr, um, Goldman Sachs, BlackRock, Credit Suisse have all built their own tokenization platforms themselves um, to tokenize their own assets, which is great. Um, that doesn't serve 99.9% .9 of investment firms. So what you're now starting to see is high quality listed companies, private equity, real estate, art houses, um, tokenizing real world assets, because now you have, um, after a couple of years, four or five years of development, you have a life cycle journey that can be um, seen, if you will, um, who wants to issue anything when it's like promises of everything, but it cannot actually happen. So you now have enough infrastructure globally to issue it through a tokenized broker dealer to trade it through a tokenized venue to custodize as well. Custody was a big issue. I think um, there's there's many many more custodians today. If you go back four years, there was zero. There was there was there was a brand new industry. There was no security token custodians in 2017 globally. There wasn't a single one on the on the planet. Um, now banks are coming out, startups are out. There's there's plenty of options. So that's been the short history of the space. And what it means now is you have high quality groups that at least if they don't see the power of DeFi, they don't see new investment structures, they see the very first 101 of tokenization of assets, which is just digital benefit versus paper, they're now all coming coming into the space. And you know the, the, the nature of, well, of human nature is that no one wants to be first and everyone wants to be second. So the first guys have now gone out the gate and now everyone's working out how to, to get involved. So 
that's kind of the short history of the space. Um, and it's it's starting to you know get a lot more momentum now. There's a lot more. The, the other major thing that's happened over the last um, period of time is there's been maturation of understanding about the difference between cryptocurrencies and security tokens and tokenized securities, um, which sounds, at least in this, when I just said it, sounds pretty obvious, but it was not obvious um, for years. And up until yeah. now, people finally get the separation and licensed institutions can do stuff related to security tokens that has in, in essentially can have nothing to do with cryptocurrency and it's fine. Um, so they're all now starting to get it. So that's the the brief history of the industry. One, one, one thing that both, I guess, um, maybe philosophically crypto has in common with tokenization is that some of those benefits are meant to be where if everything is on blockchain, you, you compress out so much of the reconciliation, so much of the post-trade processing. And we've seen the rise in the crypto space of exchanges that are also broker dealers that are also market makers that you know that are you know self custody uh so you end up with these entities that kind of also in themselves compress all those activities into one spot and then with ftx we saw obviously that's not a good idea <laughs> so or at least done that way uh there's a lot of there's a lot of uh problems with with fraud and and uh, incompetence and reminded people that you know there's a reason why there are these uh, separations by law in the U.S. at least, where you've got to have, um, you know, an individual doesn't go. I mean, I, I don't open an account on the New York Stock Exchange if I want to trade Apple stock. I have to open an account with a broker dealer. That broker dealer has to have a third party custodian somewhere, etc. So, where do you see this tension going between TradFi with its regulated requirements for different types of players doing different things? Obviously, there's an automation aspect that can be made efficient, but then within the blockchain world, there's, you know, the origins were certainly, let's cut out all these intermediaries. Where do you see that tension going when it comes to the, the regulated tokenized space? Um, well, my take on it is that um, there's plenty of middlemen. I mean, the whole capital markets is just littered with unnecessary middlemen um, who will try to stay as long as possible to... Uh, rent seek their unnecessary services um what i believe is that with you now have the ability to have direct ownership of assets via security tokens that can be seen publicly through the protocols you don't need um many of these intermediaries to give you one example our security token exchange allows the buying and selling of security tokens between investors where you sell to alice um that trade happens that's it right that the blockchain is the settlement layer there aren't five to seven other companies involved in that transaction like there are in a traditional exchange so i think over time um yeah those um the ability to uh remove you know a lot of the pain points and remove a lot of the middlemen by being able to look at the mutable edges is why regulators are positively supporting the concept of tokenized securities and security tokens it's easier to regulate it's easier to manage there's less paperwork there's less problems less potential problems so that's that that battle will rage for a long time um again while those companies that don't need to exist anymore still do still okay. do i should say i mean fund manage fund administration is another great example like you know there's a lot of cost, a lot of time, and a lot of paperwork flying around to do the most absolute basic administration work that 
blockchain can handle a super majority of. But as the gatekeepers to the fund industry, you've got to try to work out how to work with a lot of them, walk before you run, before basically they get cut out of the picture. Um, but that's the nature. It's a huge, huge, huge market. I and mean, we're talking about, you know, the private markets of five to 10 times bigger than the public market. So there's there's plenty of time. There's a long race to go and there's plenty of um, ways for people to get paid incumbent or not for a, a while till um, in, you know, bringing this new tech into the space. Yeah. Alice, yeah. given your legal background, I want to ask, you know, um, securities are basically legal contracts. So, uh, you know, most of the products sold in finance are some sort of legal contract. So are, are smart contracts ready for prime time? <laughs> yeah, we debate that internally all the time. Um, I would love to see more of these activities being um, done by technology because, mm -hmm. you know, as, as you mentioned, um, wh wh what's the intersection of, of DeFi and traditional finance? And putting my regulatory and legal hat on, um, I think just looking back at FTX, there were a lot of things that they uh, said that they were supposed to do that they didn't do. And that's not a matter of the failure of the technology, but a matter of, of the failure of proper risk management. Um, and what happened there was really, if you had enough oversight um, and regulation over and then proper oversight over the risk management um, then maybe perhaps these things would not have happened. And, and, and technology was was not the issue there. Um, in fact, what happened there was a more centralized, everyone who thought uh, they could trust the centralized exchange, but then ultimately failed. And then the, the way I see maybe DeFi coming in here is what we've coined, or actually, um, you know, the market has coined as permissioned DeFi. So you go through a centralized, trusted um, front-end interface, but in the back-end, you're actually interacting with DeFi um, uh, systems or protocols. And, and that's maybe where I see perhaps um, the, the intersection coming into play because ultimately it's about how do you protect consumers? How do you um, ensure... Uh, consumer recourse if something goes wrong, right? Who are you going to point fingers to? Well, there's got to got to be someone, and, and perhaps it's a licensed um, and, and trusted uh, party in the front end, but in the back end, there's still technology that's operating. Um, and the the reason we see really the value in the private markets is. There, there isn't a legacy system like you do in the uh, public markets, right? You still have a central depository that's required to do the reconciliation manually. You still need broker dealers. You still need um, uh, settlement and clearing agents. Um, but the private markets, other than perhaps the invention of DocuSign, has largely <laughs> kind of remained the same in terms of how you transact. And so this really creates an opportunity to, 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 to assess what types of intermediaries may not be needed, and we can leave that to technology. Okay, great. Um, you guys are based in Singapore. Uh, Julian, you're calling in from, from Australia this, today. Uh, I'm in Hong Kong. So obviously, we're in the Asia-Pac space. We've seen, uh, I think, post-FTX in the U.S., a huge change with the regulators. They're, they've become very aggressive around um, 
cracking down on what they regard as illegal um, either marketing or distribution of securities in the crypto world. Um, what what impact do you think this will have on opportunities in our part of the world? Uh, you know, do you see a, a momentum in the tokenization efforts? I mean, people say this, but I don't know if it's if it's true uh, that there'll be more activity in places like Hong Kong and Singapore. Uh, or are we still dealing with relatively small markets and, and you know, the, the real action will be in the U.S., whatever form that takes? Um, what, what, what's, your, what's your take on what's happening in this region? Uh, my take, well, I don't know if you even saw the, the Gary Gensler videos this morning. I guess they were from yesterday in the U.S. Um, it's kind of unbelievable that mm -hmm. the, the SEC is umming and ahhing and can't answer a simple question, which is highlighting the problem for the industry in America. And the head of the Securities Commission won't admit, even though he sent 55, um, I think, um, 55 companies he's tried to sort of basically attack as calling securities, but then he won't actually say whether Ethereum's a security or not, or whether he thinks it is. You've actually got conflicting uh, departments in America basically calling one thing two different things. Um, so... <laughs> You know, with that backdrop, I think America's in um, in a spin for at least another year, two or three. Um, it's driving American companies outside America. That started a while ago, but now it's in a full force. You've got like Coinbase, the only listed cryptocurrency exchange in the world, talking this morning about how everything's on the table about moving operations offshore and all this kind of stuff. So... Um, <clears throat> What does it mean? I think that America is a huge market, always will be. Um, they're massively losing the cryptocurrency space. Uh, security tokens are different. Um, I still think that um, that will be a huge, huge market, um, even though Coinbase apparently can't even get a broker deal license under a normal kind of application process, can't even get a response from this group. So there's an all out war going on over there. But so what does that mean for us? I think in Asia, I think it's never great to have a, a, a superpower of an industry, um, you know, at war with itself. But I think, you know, Asia is its own thing. I think over the last couple of years, you've seen the the pendulum swing. Um, early 2017 felt like all the crypto activity was in Asia. And then at one point felt like it was all across in America. And now it's come back all back to, to Asia again. So I think there's some natural um, ebbs and flows with how things work. But if you look at the regulators in Asia, everyone's super bullish, both uh, crypto and security tokens. Um, Japan is started off with a bit of confusion. They sorted that out. Korea is now coming online. They're talking about um, getting their security token regulations together. As you know, in Hong Kong, Hong Kong's finally getting together. Singapore's had it together for a long time. Um, and I think that uh, Asia is going to be one of the most promising spaces for all digital asset uh, industry growth for the next couple of years, for sure. How important is the CBDC? Uh, in other words, the cash leg to settle you know, securities style transactions. Is that uh, is that going to be a, a catalyst or will people be able to do this re regardless of whether we see CBDC? They can do it without it, regardless. Uh, as in, just as an example, we have HSBC virtual fiat accounts in our platform, but we'd like to put in some stable coins. Um, I think the challenge, and I've been watching this quite closely, but I, you know, the challenge with stable coins now is that the underlining, so forget algorithmic stable coins, which I think have been 100% failure to be able to withhold the, the promise of being stable. But 
the fiat-backed stable coins, at least uh, essentially the US dollar ones, you know, all have to, at least for the on-off ramps, all have to pass through US banks. So the US government can, in my mind, can um, shutter the stable coin, uh, the US dollar stable coin market. Um, I think what a lot of people don't really understand that at least last time I checked a month ago, um, three of the top six coins in cryptocurrency are stable coins. They're an absolute um, critical component of the at least the cryptocurrency market. Less so at the moment with security tokens, because you can still buy it with normal fiat cash, but very important that stable coins get sorted. And there are other stable coin projects besides US dollar stable coins, of course, XSGD, and there's a lot of other people hunting. But without stable coins, um, the security token space, in my mind, misses out on a lot of the value. You know, you want to create um, liquidity pools on an automated market maker like IXSwap, which we built. You have a real estate security token and you have USDC or USDT or whatever it is. Therefore, you can do that. If that was fiat, it doesn't work, right? So I think, um, you know, there'll be a lot of different stable coins. I think I just actually was speaking on a panel here yesterday in Sydney and National Australia Bank, um, one of the heads of the digital asset space there, they've issued seven different um, versions of the Australian stable coin and public Ethereum and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, the, again, the US is, is creating its own world, but the rest of the world's... Um, really seemingly getting on board and as you would i don't know if anyone knows but the singapore government's been trialing their own stable coin cbdc's for almost 10 years now project Uber, and i think it's phase six is public papers written about this so there's huge benefits to doing this it's just um yeah so you know we, it, it's it's critical that they that they get becomes clarity around how stable coins work in all these markets and i think it's just the latest focus for regulation is around stables great well, we're coming to the end of our time. I'm grateful for, for you guys joining me on Digifin Vox. One last uh, softball question. Oh, I can't resist. So uh, dinner table talk, uh, how much of it is um, is token tokenization and blockchain versus uh, anything else? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's really hard to avoid, um, but we, we try to make a concerted effort not to talk business at the dinner table, especially with our daughter around. But yeah, very, very hard. Um, anyone who works with us also know that we're very different people and quite opinionated. Um, and, and so we, we try to make sure that we keep that very uh, lively discussion to uh, work in our strategy sessions. <laughs> okay, very good. Look, Alice Chen and Julian Kwan, thank you so much for joining me today on Digifin Vox. Thank Thanks you. for having me, sir. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Hopefully that was uh, helpful.